Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to The Mentor, I'm Ayapurus. Mayor Aoni, welcome to The Mentor. Now, I guess i got to first kick it off. You've got an unusual name. I immediately thought your name was, Mir was short for Amir, and you um, correct me because Amir is an Arabic word and Mir is Kurdish. Correct. And, of course, the Kurds have been getting pushed from pillar to the post for in various regions um, for a whole lot of reasons, um, but you know, especially around Turkey, also around Iraq and Syria. Um, you guys have been sort of in and out of conflict a lot. So I was born in the Iraq region of what is formerly would be called Kurdistan. Um, so I was born in Soleimani, which is the central state for the Kurdish people. Um, my family came here, typical refugee story, uh, you know, flee a war-torn country, try and give your kids opportunities. Were you born at that stage? I was born there. I yep. came here when I was three and a half. Um, so my, it's a cool story. My parents at the time went to the border between Iraq and Syria. Um, my mom got on a boat first my dad had to leave her behind with is there us. a river there or something like yeah that's... yeah i'm not i'm don't know like geographically exactly yeah, yeah. but the so my mom got on the boat first to go to syria and then my dad happened to make his way after so at the time that was my older sister and then it was me we spent about nine months in syria trying to sort out temporary residency australia had some refugee program at that time and so we came here on that program because we had a contact in Sydney. So then we came here, obviously, you know, my parents didn't speak the language at all. They had no means to continue the works they were doing here. My dad was a civil engineer back at home and my mom was a fashion designer. So she was, she had her own label over there. They both came from good families, respectable families, came to Sydney. My dad started pushing trolleys at Franklin's in Auburn and my mom started working at Sofra. Um, kebab shop in Auburn. Uh, so I grew up in Auburn in those areas. And well, that's, that's interesting. Auburn's heavily populated with Turkish people. Yes. Um, was there any conflict? Look, I I have a lot of Turkish friends um, and I've never had personal conflict with Turks growing up. Um, some of my closest friends are Turks. My mum obviously worked in a shop not speaking a word of English for a Turkish family and they took her on like their own daughter. So I think a lot of the conflict is political rather than interpersonal like from person to person yeah you know no nah, i don't i don't carry that baggage so as a kid growing up in auburn um obviously you went to school there because you're only three when you arrived here in australia yes um do you remember how quickly it took you to learn the language i think it wasn't as difficult for me as potentially my older sister because i was still very young so i was still in that you know maturation stage where i was learning things pretty quickly um when i arrived we had to go to daycare 
quite quickly. And obviously we had to learn English at daycare. But my father had a firm rule that at home you didn't speak any English. So we would keep our Kurdish culture alive at home, um, which I'm very grateful for because I still speak the language fluently and I haven't lost that. So at home we were actually slapped if we spoke English. Uh, but no, I don't remember any difficulties learning English at all. Did you ever have designs on what it was you wanted to be when you, once you left school? Uh, growing up in an ethnic household, I think all, all parents wanted me to be a doctor, yeah, yeah. an architect. Or a know, lawyer. Civil engineer, a lawyer. Uh, go to uni, get a yeah. good degree. My household yeah. uh, specifically. Yeah. and I mean, it's, it's a common household story. I didn't really um, know what I wanted to do when I wanted to be older. I didn't have those dreams. I liked sports, so I thought I was going to be an athlete when I grew up. I think they came a crossroads during the time when I was studying at university where I drew a line in the sand of not following the pathway of an athlete, but following the pathway of a coach. I felt like at the time, my interests were lying more in being a coach and pursuing that than actually pursuing being an athlete. A simple moment was me realizing in my spare time, I was doing more to understand about anatomy and physiology rather than you know watching fight tape and learning about skills. And I always appreciated that combat sports, it wasn't the sort of sport you kind of half-assed and, you know, just did it on the weekends for fun. So I I made the decision to pursue professional coaching and pursue obviously the scientific path and went down and did my degree at sports science at Sydney University. Um, when I finished, I was interested in doing my master's program, but I took the pathway of more internships and real life experience rather than just more paperwork. Um, and I'm very happy I made that decision at the time. Just take me through that. What do you mean by that internships? So when I finished my degree, I spent a year just traveling with a friend, came back, started working in a commercial gym. Um, this is a quick time lapse of my career to date. Uh, and at the time in Sydney, there were there weren't really any facilities or coaches. How far back are we going? We're going back to twenty fifteen. Right. Um, yeah, at the time there weren't a lot of coaches or facilities working with combat athletes in Sydney. So I was volunteering, working in some different sporting populations, you know, track and field, basketball. But I wasn't really interested. So at the time, I reached out to a coach who was presenting in Sydney and they recommended that I reach out to a few people in America. And so I did that, uh, connected with a coach in America who I'm still very close with now. Um, his name's Lauren Landau. And then I pretty much sorted out my visa program, went over to America and spent eight weeks there. And what type of coach was he? Um, so he was the head of performance effectively for the Denver Broncos and he owned a private facility and in his private facility they were working with a lot of combat athletes Justin Gaethje, Neil Magny, TJ Dillashaw, Curtis Blades I'm sure all names that you're familiar with and so I thought I need to go there and learn from this guy and learn from this environment Um, and that's what I did. People often wonder how they can network and get an advantage out of the network and you obviously reached out to somebody I don't know if you knew him or not but somehow you got accepted yeah. by this individual. How the hell did you, a young Kurdish kid, just fresh out of university doing a uh, sports science degree, where did you get the courage to do it? And, uh, you know, what made you think you could do it? And what was it that allowed you to pull it off? Since a kid, um, like my, my parents always said to just, just try things. And I think watching them grow up, I kind of, I wasn't afraid to just try. Um, and, and I still carry that today. So in... 
in defense of the story, internships aren't an uncommon thing to offer to students. Uh, yeah, I but there's plenty of students in the exactly, US. Exactly right. So I applied for a few in America and just got rejected. I think they thought that, look, this kid's in Australia, he's not going to come over. When I applied at Landau's, look, it, it took six emails and I still didn't get a reply from him. I called the facility um, on a landline in America and his, his uh, PA picked up. And I said, look, my name's Mia. I'm calling from Sydney. She was a bit like taken off. And I said, I just need a yes or a no because you, like, I'm, I don't want to waste your or my time either. She said, no, no, like set, we'll, we'll check your email. And we'll get back to you. So they responded within a day, I remember. And they said, look, you've been accepted. So I purchased flights and everything. I sent them the details just to show them that I was, I was serious. I actually ended up... Um, not being able to go initially because Trump had that clause where people who were born in Iraq couldn't enter the US on an ESTA program. So I lost all my money on flights and everything. Um, and at the time, they were quite, you know, call it embarrassed as Americans that that was happening to me. So they said, look, it's all good. Sort, sort your stuff out and we'll let you back in when you're ready. So I applied for a visa, got it, repurchased my flights and accommodation, and then I went over again. So there definitely was an element of persistence involved in making that happen. Um, but yeah, I, was, I wasn't going to not make it happen. What was it that directed you to go to Landau? How did you find out how to contact them? Like just how did you work out what their email address was? What did you do? I was at a seminar in Sydney. It was called the uh, Play Conference. Obviously, when you're in an industry, there's you know communal pages and the, the Play Conference still continues today. So if you're an aspiring strength and conditioning coach, a physio, allied health, you go to these seminars to network and to learn. So when I was there, I approached the head of the seminar. At the seminar? At the seminar. You walked up and said, hey. I walked up to him and said, hey, man, I've got a question. And I said, um... I'd like to, you know, learn from some more people who are in combat sports. Can you give me some names? And he's like, yeah, mate, sure. Like here are three people you can reach out to. And I said, do you have the email addresses? He goes, yep, sure thing. So he gave me their contact details. I sent them emails. Two said, we don't have anything available to you. And then Lauren, that was a story that prevailed from there onwards. Uh, I find it really interesting. So that when you're networking, you're not just walking around glad handing everyone and saying, you know, how are you going? Here's my business card or whatever the case may be and just walking away. I mean, you actually targeted, you had an objective, yep. you targeted someone, you were prepared to get a rejection, but you still did it. I agree with you in that when a lot of people are networking now, they kind of either don't have the strategy on how to effectively network and, you know, not go in with an agenda, but have an objective and to network effectively. I mean, I still do it now when I go to an event where I'm talking to younger students or other allied health uh, professionals in the industry. So the for, for me, I, I definitely remember going to that conference saying I wanted to speak to one of the few people that were there from the States because I wanted to get some information about who I could reach out to because I had no options in Australia. Um, I would have traveled to Perth, to Melbourne if it meant networking and learning from some folks, but that that person just didn't exist at the time for me. So my my plan definitely was to just ask, just to ask if they said, we've got nothing for you. I mean, what's the worst that happens? I'd be back where I started that day. And when you pitch into the people in um, the US, what did your content say? Did you say, did you give yourself a bit of a rap? Or, I mean, what, what did you say? I had no rap to give. But what, what, how did you get no them interested? But how did you get them interested then? Because uh, they're probably getting thousands of these things across the states. Well, by email, it was my name is XYZ. I'm a student from Sydney. Um, I'm an aspiring you know, strength and conditioning professional. I'd like to apply for the internship program. They'd get millions of these emails. Whether or not they get six and a call and the level, level of persistence that I had, that I don't know. But look, I happen to have that little 
sprinkle of luck that day when I called and Amber, the, the PA, picked up and she said, look, Lauren's with me now. She said, I'll ring it by him and see why he hasn't responded to you because normally he's very responsive. And in that moment, he responded. Did you tell him a bit of a story? Did you say, look, I'm a kid, Kurdish kid, came to Australia? Did you <laughs> no, put I, any I, of that stuff in there? I'd probably be able to find the email if I tried to look, but I remember saying my background and that I was serious about learning and why I was reaching out to Lauren was because I had no more op- options in Sydney. And so I told them I was serious about applying for the internship and I wasn't, I was aware of the costs of flights and everything. And that was a commitment I was willing to make. They just saw your commitment. They said, well, this, here's a kid. He's prepared to pay his own way, cover his own costs, leave Australia, leave his family, leave Australia, lodge here. I know that that was a, an appealing part because I remember Lauren told me himself, he said, the fact that you're willing to fly over here at you know 23 years of age, fork out all that money just to learn from us. He said it also means a lot to us because it's it's a it's almost like a a reflection of the, the professionalism in their facility and for his team. And I remember when when I was there, he said, it's been great having you here because it's opened my coach's eyes and they've realized that if you're willing to travel all the way from Australia to this facility just to learn that they've got it pretty good if they can call this place their place of work um, and where they get to pursue their vocation. So th- that was a, a cool part of it also. Because for me, I was just happy to be there. I was just happy to learn. Mate, I, I can't, I remember how excited I was to be there. At the time when I was in, it was in Colorado, in Denver, I was staying at my auntie's at the Colorado Springs, which is just about an hour away down south. And I stayed with her so I didn't have to pay accommodation again because obviously from the first rejection, I had no more money left. So I would drive up from my auntie's place every morning probably leave her house at 4 a.m. to get there by 5, 5.30 so I can make the morning sessions. And I spent all day there. Uh, and I was just happy to be there. And no, was, you don't get paid? Of course not. No. So it's all- and I was still own. paying rent here, both at the gym that I was working at. I was still paying rent here where I was renting with my partner at the time. So yeah, that whole trip at 23 probably cost me 15 to 20 grand, considering I had to buy food there, pay for petrol, you know, shout lunches, shout coffees, all that stuff. Just to, you know- being obsequious. Yeah. And how long did you stay there for? Uh, just under eight weeks. So eight weeks. Do you go in there again with the strategy? This is what i got to find out. I went in there as an open book. I went in there saying, I know where I'm going. Uh, I have, I, I knew that there was going to be so much to learn. So I remember being on the floor, respectful of the environment, obviously as a young intern. I was just there with a notebook. I had my computer. Any opportunities that came up to ask questions, I would ask the hundred questions I had written down on my notepad. Uh, and then I just help out. I'd put weights away. I would ask the coaches there if they needed any assistance. I tried to stay out of the way and just observe. And then when opportunities came up to ask what I needed to ask and ask my questions, I did that. And look, I... I think I have a a good ability to show appreciation and I'm a very grateful person. So when I was there, I think it's just an ethnic thing also. You know, I'd get coffees for all the guys in the mornings. Every time I was at a cafe, I'd call Lauren and be like, hey, mate, I'm just at a coffee place, you know, in Denver. It's really good. Do you want a coffee? He'd be like, "Uh, yeah, sure. And I'm like, fuck, if I got him one, I got to get all the other guys one. So now I'm 50 US dollars deep into buying coffees for people. Uh, And I think that just, that, that warmed them up to me quite quickly. So I made a lot of friends in Denver, people I still speak to now. Um, I still speak to Lauren. I consider him a mentor of mine and a close friend over the last, you know, seven to eight years. And yeah, I think me showing how hungry I was just to learn and be there made it easy to connect with them. Um, 
and my story in that I came from Australia, that I got rejected the first time, I noticed that Lauren gave me a little bit more of his time than he did to some of the other interns there. And I was very appreciative of that. So funny enough, I think two years later, Lauren was coming back down to Sydney uh, to present at the national conference in Gold Coast. So I told him, I'll meet you there a week early and I'll show you around. So we met there. I took him to the reptile park. He wanted to put a koala on his back and we did all that stuff. And in those exchanges, we went out to lunch. We went out to dinner. I asked him about business, how to build a successful you know, performance facility, how to run a team, how to remain relevant in the climate, all those sorts of things. So it was... Yeah, when I, when I started and said I went down the route of internships and experiences rather than more paperwork, I'm very happy that I did that at the time. You, you obviously built a very good relationship with him and, and clearly you learned a lot from him. Where was the genesis of Ethos, your business, Ethos, your performance management business, both sports performance management business, particularly for um, combat sports? How did that arise? So The idea. The idea. I, I was actually sitting down with Lauren and we were talking about business names and uh, it was having coffee with him where we came up with Ethos Performance. He's, and he, I remember he said, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. He said, you should keep that one. And that was the, the origin of it. But my background was in combat sports as an athlete. And obviously, like I had mentioned, the, the professional landscape at the time in terms of high performance for combat athletes in Sydney and Australia it didn't really exist. Hence, I went to America. And then when I came back, I just leveraged what I had learned, my continual interest, and then the relationships that I had at the time to start working with combat athletes more and more and more and more. And look, I was still personal training at the time to earn an income to facilitate- your cash flow. To, to facilitate my side hustle, my hobby, my, my interest, which was working with combat athletes. And I did that for a, a lot of years. I coached a lot of people for free. I was driving all over Sydney just to get more skin in the game, get more experience, take different fighters through different programs and, you know, do more fight camps just to build more experience with, with that population. And then I migrated my personal training business out of a commercial facility, which I had outgrown at that time to a another facility in Rhodes in that in the you know inner west area in Sydney and it was at that facility where the population of athletes that I was working with really started to grow and it it, it took a few catalyst athletes like Tyson Pedro George Cambosis Taito Ivasa and when I started working with them and people on social media obviously with social media becoming more prominent at the time also just a lot a lot of eyes were on what they were doing and then people realized that they were all training with the same person being me. And so organically, a lot of young fighters, a lot of up and coming combat athletes started reaching out to me. So it was at that facility where I really got the opportunity to build a, a stable of athletes that I was working with. That went right up until first lockdown and the owner of that facility kicked me out. He said, when lockdown's effectively over, you've got, you don't have a place to come back to. So within a four month window, I had to secure a lease, secure a loan, and open a facility. And how I got to know about you was actually watching, I think it was Ty Bam Bam, I think it was him, um, but I, I can't quite remember, it might have been George, um, seeing that they gave you a bit of a rap a few times and I, then I wonder, who's this ethos guy? Yeah. And then I started following you. That worked, But and by the way, um, from my point of view at least, and I'm sure lots of other people started to come to you as a result of that. I want to ask you this. 
Why was it that you thought that you should build us something specific around that? I didn't. You didn't? I didn't. Do you, you believe in persistence as a, as a good quality, right, yeah, Mark? Yeah. Um, do you also believe that every story has a little sprinkle of luck? Yep. Where the opportunity finds you at the right time? Yep. Given you've done the right things to You've got to there. be in the field to have, for it to happen. Correct. Yep. You can't just sit there on your ass yep. and go, luck, find me, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for me, that was, I, I blindly out of complete passion and interest said, I'm indexing heavily in combat sports because it's all I wanted to do. But I still was preserving cash flow by seeing those people that I was getting Nothing paid. specific, just, just train just me. Just general populations, yeah. which is still very admirable. And yeah, I still, wrong with and it. our business still does it also. But for, for me, my sprinkle of luck was that nobody else was doing it as heavily as I was in that window of time. And so... I built a solid reputation working with the best combat athletes in the country who went on to being the best combat athletes in the world. And so if I try to do the same thing right now in today's climate, it's a very different path. It's a very different story because the market's more saturated now. A lot of people started to realize that, oh, combat sports are getting more popular. popular. So they tried to index and also come into the field because they saw market opportunity. I never saw the market opportunity at the start. For me, it was purely out of passion and what I wanted to do. Then I started to see the market opportunity and I capitalized on that. So for me, the initial desire wasn't financial. The initial desire was out of pur purpose and passion and what I wanted to do. Then I found a way to capitalize on that and monetize it and also make it a sustainable business. Now, Fast track eight years working with combat athletes pretty much full time now, especially in the last five years. I'm also aware that the business, in order to continue to grow, we have to now widen the branch of the tree in order to continue to grow the business and capitalize on other areas. However, my bread and butter and my baby will always be working with combat athletes. Um, it's what I do every single day. It's what I do full time. All, all my focus is still on combat sports, high performance management. That, that's what we do. That's what I do as a sub-branch in the business. So I think for people, the whole thing of niching, I niched in an industry that's already niched. So strength and conditioning, high performance, it's a quite a niche industry. Um, jobs are hard to attain, whether it's working in the employment sector or working in the private sector. Now to within that industry to say, I'm only going to index on a specific athletic population. A lot of people at the time when I was doing it were like, mate, you shouldn't do that. Probably not a smart business move. What if it flopped? You won't have all that money. I was like 23, 24. I thought, Nothing to lose. <laughs> whatever, right? Yeah. Whatever. So I went all in, blind, just all in. It's all I did. And I was so hungry. Uh, and I think that's, I did all the right things to be able to accept that little bit of luck that came my way. And that's my story. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. with me and we're talking all things ethos performance and ethos performance i mean we've already heard the story about how the name came about but it's it does a whole lot of stuff it's a strength and conditioning business owned by mia um but he specifically he specifically uh, also trains combat sports professionals and probably amateurs too i guess yeah definitely yeah definitely definitely amateurs and uh and of course you got some famous names there um you know you were very modest in the way you talked about some of those people but yeah like to to be honest with like you know george Cambosis is one of my favorite boxers in australia at the moment and has been for uh, quite a while he's been on your podcast he's been on my show yeah yeah he's been on my show a couple of times and uh and i remember i picked george out i think it was in um 2018 along with tim zoo uh, I picked Brock Jarvis also and also had Volk on there. None of them were world champions at the time. And I picked them out as four guys I interviewed over a month, four podcasts in a month. And I said, as far as I'm concerned, these four guys will become world champions in their specific areas. Three did. Good um, spotting. And Brock could have if he had a state at featherweight, but he decided to go up weights. and uh, Brock still can. But, but it's going to be much harder yes. where he is now. He's talking world weight, and that's Tim Zhu's division. Yeah. Um, and or maybe he's even talking about um, light middle. So it's it's a heavier, tougher, yeah. harder. Blokes hit harder and and, um, and you've got to hit harder. And they're, and also they're your height. Definitely. What's interesting about those four, um, two of those you you coach. That's is George Cambosis. Yeah. Um, and who's fighting this weekend? When you get these sorts of individuals – what do you do in terms of building a program? I'll give you an example of an athlete um, that we're speaking about being George because I've worked with George the longest out of all of those athletes. Yep. Your strength and conditioning for George, George has lots of different coaches. Yes. Boxing coach I'm talking about. Yep. But you've been the, the cornerstone in terms of your strength and conditioning. Yeah, I've been working with George very consistently for almost eight years now. Yeah. So while he was in the Philippines with Fortune, um, while he's made those transitions in camps, I've always been in, in the corner with him. And G- George is a very unique athlete because, and I say this objectively in that I don't think I've ever worked with anybody who's been so consistent for such a long period of time. In, in weight division, you mean? He, uh, he, doesn't ha- he walks around as a natural lightweight. He, he's a natural lightweight, yeah. definitely. And over the years, he's, we've got him bigger. We've got him walking around to a heavier weight so he can actually cut down a little bit to lightweight. But by consistency, I mean in 
not getting sidetracked with things like taking extended breaks, um, making money and falling off the horse a little. So he, he, I think he's very intrinsically motivated, regardless of all of the external pleasures of becoming, you know, one of the most successful athletes in the world. So with George or with any athlete that we work with, like we were saying earlier before the show started, we also start working backwards, backwards from what they need to develop physically and backwards from major competitive, major competitive events that are upcoming. And obviously that changes for an amateur athlete. It changes for a professional athlete, but ultimately it's a working from a set objective, that being the person's physical requirements, as well as their competitive requirements. And then working to that date. So like someone like George, do you look at him and say, he needs to put on a little bit more strength in his uh, posterior area. Definitely. So we have a in-depth testing process that we take our athletes through at Ethos. Okay, let's go through that because that's what I want to know. We test isolated joint strength in areas like the neck, hips, um, elbows, shoulders, all common joints and also common areas that combat athletes need, need to be strong in. We test their power, uh, we test their maximal force production, we test their energy systems. So at the moment, our testing protocol, I'd say for a combat athlete, is, prob- is probably the best in the country, objectively speaking. Um, and we've we've collected data on over 350 combat athletes over the last two and a half years. So we have a really good sample size. And by that, what I mean is we can tell an MMA athlete based on their results, here's where they stack up against, you know, a cohort of X amount of athletes, which is all a nice to have. Yep. Definitely in a weight category based sport, it's nice to be able to do that. Obviously, there are certain weight categories that we don't have a lot of data on. For example, if you look at female mixed martial artists, there just aren't that many in the yep. country as it stands. So the population pool is a little bit smaller. But either way, we have good information where we can tell an athlete, here are your weaknesses. Here, here's where you stack against some of the other athletes in this demographic. And then we also have data from you know the UFC Performance Institute where we can share what their averages look like and where our athletes stand at the moment. Now, that's all a nice to have. And the way I like to justify it is it just enables better decision-making when you're working with an athlete. So if I can show an athlete, you started at this point, And in a three to six month window, we are now here, quantitatively speaking, I can let them know that they're improving. So look, for me, there's a saying of like, if you're not testing, you're guessing. And not everybody has the access to the resources that we have now, but you can always test on a budget relative to the person. Um, There's a big spectrum of testing. You can think about it like a bronze, silver and gold package. So for us, the first place we start now is testing an athlete, is to get an understanding of their baseline of physical, you know, uh, capabilities. And then we work backwards from the things that we need to start working on with that person. I've been thinking for some time about uh, what are my objectives? I mean, I don't want to make this about me, but um, what are my objectives? Because, you know, like, because the only way I can work out relevance in terms of training is what's my objective. And then I've got to work out, well, well, Mark, what functions do you want to be able to do now and in the future, more importantly? Um, and what is the, how do you build up towards that? And it's, you know, I'm, not, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to run a hundred, run a hundred meters in 12 seconds. I don't want to play rugby league for New South Wales. Um, uh, I don't, I've, I've given the boxing away, so I'm not going to have any boxing things. I, I really like my jujitsu. So I'd like to get stronger at that. Um, but functionally, I want to be able to bend down, walk upstairs, walk downstairs, um, you know, b- pick up a wheelbarrow at home if I'm at the farm, dig some holes in the garden if I want to, you know, lift the soil up and I don't want to end up with a saw back at the end of the night. I want to be able to use a pitchfork and a, a, a spade. And I've been thinking about a lot, like uh, 
you know, this functional stuff. Like what functions do you want to be able to perform? And then I thought to myself, it really most people who go to the gym don't really understand what sort of exercise they should be doing because that their starting point, what functions do I want my exercises to help me with? They haven't started from the right starting point. Is that something you come across? I mean, you talk, just put fighters aside for the moment. Yeah, definitely. But just generally, like, I mean, it's a, it's a big gap. 100%. And I think, Mark, social media and all of the information now doesn't help with that either. Uh, you said it really well. My mum's 60 years old and- I trump her. I'm, I'm a bit older than her, a lot actually. Yeah? I'm nearly 70. Oh, wow. So my mom, about three years ago, she had a knee replacement and um, she started getting a lot of back pain. Obviously, ethnically speaking, no history of weight training or an appreciation for any of that stuff. So I said, mom, just come to the gym. Obviously, you know, we'll train you. Let's just get started. She was resistant for a while and then she took it on board. Three years later, my mom is an absolute beast in the gym now. And I can <laughs> see how confident she is because... It's enabled her to do exactly those things that you just said. She's playing with my nieces on the ground now. She's able to walk upstairs. And um, Dr. Adia speaks about this as well, where he says- Is, he, is that an Arabic name? I don't know. Atia, Atia, Atia. Egyptian maybe? It, it, could, it sounds like Lebanese he's or something. He's definitely got like Egyptian this. eyebrows, that's for sure. So. Totally, because I, I, I was talking about a mate of mine who's a Lebanese guy and he said, oh, he's Lebanese for sure. Yeah, that's, that's, like, the, uh, yeah. that's the ethnic- yeah, that's we adopt. Pr- the proud Lebanese, yeah. Uh, he- um, so, you know, Dr. Adia speaks about the fact that after a certain age group uh, or an age range, call it 65 years old, your biggest, one of your biggest uh, problems that will arise is your your, your risk of falling. Yeah, hip, right? hip, hip problems. Hip problems. And the, the statistics show that, you know, at 65 years and above, if you fall and have a hip replacement- One you, year. One to two years, right? So then you work back from- markers such as that and go, how do I prevent You should just explain that. You mean as in a biomarker, like a marker that marks something that could happen to you. That, that that's, Correct. A, that's, a, that's a tester. That's a, a baseline tester position. Things that you should be aware of. Like most men after 50 years of age probably develop some sort of prostate cancer. Yeah. And so having regular um, colonoscopies are going to be helpful for your health, getting blood work done and checking your testosterone. And PSA. And PSA, correct. And looking at those markers are important because statistically speaking, those things are going to cause detrimental effects to your health after a certain age. So if I'm you, Mark, I'm being aware of all of those markers. I'm testing all of the requisite tests to check those things. And then I'm working backwards from the sort of life I want to live. Call it, I don't know, you want to live to your 80, you want to live to your 90, but- 100. You want to live to 100? Yep. So you're me as- uh, I'm serious. Project 100, I call it. Okay. And I've and I actually been talking to Geordie, our yeah. mate Jordan Sullivan, yeah, yeah. the fight dietitian. I've been talking about Geordie about, and just recently, actually on Monday, I said, Geordie, is anybody doing the Peter Tier blood work in Australia? He said, not really. He's, but he gave me some names of some mobs who uh, sort of have quite an extended list of biomarkers in the blood tests and also saliva tests and urine tests. And um, But no one really does something complete. I was actually thinking about getting onto a team and say, look, can I do a telehealth with you? I'm happy to pay. And say, mate, what biomarkers do you test for? It would be great to do that. Bring it back to St. Vincent's, I don't know, wherever, and just say, build a program. It's very hard to get those bloods done because they're not going to be provided by a general practitioner. Just, yeah. Just, well, the GP doesn't even know. Exactly right. They're not aware of the things that you're even trying to ask for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if I'm you, Mark, like I said, I'm checking all those things and then I'm looking at the quality of life you want to have, but also the things that you want to do. So if we look at, 
falling and absorbing forces, being able to absorb force uh, is going to be an important quality for you as you continue to get older. If I fall, can I get up with one arm? Can you get up, but can your body actually absorb the impact of the fall? Yeah, yeah. Um, especially if doing things like jujitsu. So we call that, you know, eccentric strength. Can the muscle lengthen and absorb force at different speeds? Because those- can you explain this to me? Like, this is important. So. I don't know if you know where I trained. I trained up the road with Larry Papadopoulos. Larry, uh, yeah, yeah. I used to train at Boxing Works when I was eighteen. Well, that's where I go. I go to, uh, well, um, I, but I just Peter did Gray, it. the chief was there back the in the chief day. Was there, yeah. And um, my wrestling coach Mark Stefaniev was there. And at of the course, time. Uh, we used to train. Uh, Mark, on, I can't use the train. It's not there anymore. And I still no no. As in know, where, where I used to train, it's not there the anymore. Yeah yeah yeah. It's up at King's I used cross. to train on the corner where it was um it was in the Hungry Jacks I think yeah, it was on the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I used to train downstairs with the guys where all the flies used to come out of the bin because of how. You know, that fight, yeah, yeah, that yeah. old school I, I, fight I, I, gym. Yeah. 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 Well, this one here is, um, yeah, this is a pretty good gym, but it's mostly MMA fighters. There are not many boxers. They call it boxing works, but it's mostly MMA yeah. stuff or, and, and or jiu-jitsu. Man, those, those guys are legitimately the OGs and the, the combat Larry game. is the dude. Larry is, yeah. He's a scary dude, but he's he's the nicest bloke in the world. But he what he doesn't know about the sport, um, nobody knows in terms of technique. Yeah. And I find it very frustrating, to be honest with you. But, um, but in any event... Um, one of the things I've noticed is uh, sometimes when I like if I'm if I'm just trying to get out of, you know, he, he's he's got me in some sort of position and I'm trying to stand up, my left side starts to give away a little bit because um, uh, I got a burst I got bursitis okay it's just a burst on the hip I don't my hips okay but I thought to myself well you got to start to train around do you train around your weaknesses. Um, in other words, do you train yourself in order to be better at jujitsu as making the assumption you have a weakness, or do you try to tra- train your weakness away? Physically or technically speaking? You know, We're talking about the jujitsu movement? Well, or just the- in the gym. So, in terms of what I would do in the gym. Yeah. So, let's say I, I, here's my training, I train on the ground, Larry, blah, blah, blah. But then I, I go to do a gym session the next day, right? Do, am I, do you make an assumption that, Mark, you, at, at your age, you're always going to have this drama? Um, and therefore, train the rest of your body to be able to compensate for that. Or do you? Would, would someone like you guys at Ethos Performance? Would you suggest that um, an older person should actually try to train the injury way? In other words, build more muscle around that area, the bursitis area, the left side. You know, uh, you know, build your glutes up maybe more, or fix, get your lower back stronger, or uh, you know, maybe get your quads stronger, or something like that. I mean, w- what is the process? I mean, what do you say to people like me? I know you don't train necessarily. You're not looking at my marketplace because you look, you got combat athletes. But what is the professionally? Do. You do have older per- people. personally. You got your mum. No, as in like I work with uh, on on a personal interest basis. There's about five to ten, all men actually, who are either retired. MMA athletes somewhere in the UFC who I work with now just to help them, you know, sustain physical health ongoing in their lives because they want to maintain that even though they're not professional athletes anymore. So for, for me, I would look at, Mark, I'd look at the things that you want to do in life, right? So I'd approach it with the same scope that I would for a combat athlete. We would just modify the factors that would be you in that case. So I'd look at what does Mark want to be able to do? What is Mark currently good at and not good at? And then based on what you want to do, what are the requirements of that sport or that activity? So if you said me, I own an acreage, I want to be able to split wood, walk up and down the ranch, I need to be able to look after the animals, pick up hay, etc, etc, etc. I'd look at the mechanics of those movements and make sure that you're physically able to actually execute. Compensations are going to happen regardless. Everybody has compensations. The body is really amazing in that way where most people are actually quite proficient with their compensations. It's how do you prevent that person from developing 
negative compensations that can cause issues elsewhere. In terms of negative compensations, because you might have pain there, you stop exercising and all of a sudden it starts to deteriorate. Correct. So let's say you have back pain primarily on the left side of your body. And that prevents you from doing any sort of resistance training because at the moment it's just causing you pain. And so you, you just do it. You just avoid it, right? Yeah, correct. Now avoiding lower limb strength training on that left side will start creating compensations that exacerbate on the right side. And then therefore that just becomes a spiral of a continuing problem. Now you can't do jujitsu, you start sitting more, you start losing bone density at your age, you get atrophy in your muscles, and then the spiral continues to exacerbate further and further. So we ideally get in early, identify why that compensation or that pain is happening in the first place. So, you know, the whole band-aid solution, you don't just look at, okay, Mark's got lower back pain. It must be coming from his back. You look at the reasons why that's coming. Um, and chances are activities like jujitsu are provoking in nature. I mean, you're always trying to break a limb, choke someone. So you're going to cause some, some issues every now and again. And if you're not ready to take those consequences on, then probably stop doing jujitsu. Um, no I mean, this, this morning I had a jujitsu session with my coach, and you know we were doing um, aoki leg locks and heel hooks. And my knee is still sore just from drilling the bloody movements, but I, I love it. I'm not going to not do it, right? But you look at what's required in the sport of jujitsu. You need good hip mobility. You need good thoracic mobility. You need good strength. And every single person is going to have a different set of natural things that they're good at. If I get a 120 kilogram jujitsu player, he's going to have a different tactical game plan to maybe a 60 kilogram jujitsu guy. The 120 kilo guy is probably going to be a little bit slower. He'll be probably a top player, like to use his weight, use his strength. The 60 kilo guy might be happier on his back. He might be better doing things like a bolo and, you know, weaving his legs in and out. The big guy might not have the dexterity in his limbs to do that. So you'd also look at what's Mark good at. Let's make sure he always stays good at those things as well while we try to bring up the things that he's not so good at. And that's just good coaching in my opinion. Business owners are uh, renowned for working their asses off, missing meals, and not really attending to themselves, but I take a different view. In order to be the best you can be in terms of business, you have to be the best you can be physically, which means you've got to exercise. What's your view on that? I completely agree with you. I think um, I've always tried to lead from the front in that, so my team and the people I'm around with can also see that. I feel like if you neglect the things that you preach, I'm talking about people in my industry, we talk about effective sleep, good eating habits, good exercise habits. If you neglect those things, it ultimately detracts from you as a high-performance uh, individual, high-performing individual. And so I'm well aware that there are times where you're running on three hours of sleep. You've had, you know, six espressos because you're working on a new project. I get it. I've been there. I continue to be there from time to time. But there are a few key rocks in my life that I never let go of. And that's my physical shape. That's my ability to exercise, stay strong, stay conditioned, both physically and mentally, and my nutrition and, and, and those sorts of things. Because I'm aware that if I let go of those things, A, I'm a fraud to what I tell people is important. And B, I won't be able to perform at the level that I want to. So I completely agree with you. I really like the way you approach things um, in terms of or, or ethos, performance approaches things um, re relative to specificity, in other words, in a person. And I think that's really cool. Like it's it's a new movement because like most of us, all my, like when I first started training, I was like going to the gym, that is, I was like uh, 16 and uh, there was a bench press and it was a bag and a couple of hand weights that were all rusty and uh, you just did some curls and a few things like that. And uh, it's amazing how the world has changed in the last, in that case, 50 years, um, how the world has changed and become much more um, 
sophisticated and you're at the cutting edge of this sophistication because we didn't have in those days anybody who understood the science. It was all handed down, old school, um, sort of wives' tales to some extent, how you train, how you exercise. You know, the, the big thing was if he's a good 400-meter runner, he can play football and he can box. <laughs> you know, so if you weren't any good at 400 meters, you immediately thought you can't play football yeah. or can't box. Um, and everyone was trying to do 400s and that getting injured, of course. Um, because they didn't do enough exercise to be good at a 400. Because a 400, you're running, it's a hard run. You know? yep. And you, and if you don't, if you haven't built the right muscles up in order to be able to do that, you'll get an injury for sure. Something is going to not work, it was going to work against you. But what you're doing, what Ethos Performance Now is doing, is applying science. And also, as you said, really, right at the very beginning, sort of a passion to get things right. Um, and that's pretty cool. I, I'm, I should have taken up your offer to come and uh, train with you a long time ago, which you did offer to me uh, maybe a couple of years ago. A couple of years uh, ago. Yeah, it was a couple yeah. of years ago. There are certain things that people should just do year round. And I, like you said, with the field moving forward, more and more professionals are coming to realize that, okay, there are just some stock standard things that I should probably be ticking off with this athlete. But even George right now being in... Um, in America, preparing for the fight on the 22nd of July. We were speaking earlier, earlier last week and at the moment, I'm not giving him a program because we did all the things leading up to the last six weeks and usually what you see in camp, especially towards the end of a fighter's camp is the strength and conditioning contribution should back off a little so they can get the most out of their sparring, their skills work and their tactical preparation. So it almost goes in opposite directions. When they're out of camp when they're not preparing for a fight that's upcoming in the imminent future, we can really start ramping things up in the gym. And that's what George and I do very, very well together. So out of camp, he's back onto it straight away. We're in the gym. We're identifying where we can make improvements. Can we put on some more muscle? You know, we'll chat with his dietitian at the time and then we'll work on those things. So George right now, as an example, isn't doing any of my programming. Tyson Pedro just flew to New Zealand last week. He will be following a program probably right up until the fight. But again, his case is different because of his injury history. He can't afford to not do any strength training when he's in camp because of his multiple ACL rehab cases. So He can't afford not to do any training. No, he needs the resilience that you get from strength training because of his knee. So... I don't know if you're aware of the CKB schedule overseas, but in camp, it's pretty brutal. They, they really push those guys hard. So with Tyson, we do one strength session a week at the start of the week when he's most fresh. And for us, it's it's about ticking off boxes so we can maintain some sort of resilience in his lower body so he can cope with the demands of that camp. He's a city kid boxing, is he? Correct. Yeah. yeah. So he does his camps there now. So he went there last week. He'll probably be there till one week out of the fight. They'll come back to Sydney and do the whole fight week here. It's going to be pretty cool that fight fight weekend. And how do you think George is going to go? I mean, I, I reckon George has got the stats on him. Um, yeah. But we'll see. I mean, you know, Mark, it's, it's a fight. Yeah, things can, can happen. happen. Yeah, I've always backed George. F- yeah, me since, too. Since he was a, a young fighter, our first fight was in um, Melbourne Pavilion, and then it was pretty cool. We worked together up until he had these world title fight in Marvel, and it was a nice reflection to look at where he started and kind of where he is. I think um, I think George will win against Maxi pretty convincingly, not because of my relationship with George, but because I can see how hard he's preparing and all the improvements and adjustments he made since he let his last loss. George will have to fight for the IBF and then 
I don't know, Tank and Tank and um, Shakur will have to fight for the WBC or the WBA, and then they'll have those little matchups that happen again in that mix. And just by the way, Thanos is a by the way, if you don't know, is a Greek god, and he was a Greek god of death. <laughs> and I don't know why they picked the Thanos. I have a son called Dane, and his name in Greek is Thanos. Um, and my uh, favorite Marvel character, Thanos. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. favorite Marvel. Uh, he's my favorite because in all of his aggression, he just wants peace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um. Yeah, I think it's a it's an interesting character for 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 a male figure to have that as well. But well, we, we won't touch on that today. Yeah, I've really enjoyed being with him. Maybe we could do a collab together when all the after September when all the you know the fighting's all over and you know the UFC's done here and George has won won his uh, IBO fight and um, and things quieten down a little bit. Maybe we could do a collab and I can come and see you and we can sort of film you looking maybe testing me and uh, and then we can sort of work out. You know, what I need to do once I sit down and brief you on what my functions I want to be able to perform and is that what does an older person like me do in terms of training regimes relative to how I want to function? I think the um, now that you told me the Project 100, it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to help it you out cool. with that. Yeah. And I'm going to I'm going to get Geordie involved in terms of – I've already been talking to Geordie a lot about it, but, you know, I want to have proper baselines, what I can do physically, yeah. that's say someone like you, what's, what's my – my, my what are my objective reads at the moment? Blood tests and things like that say. Be good to you know. There's no one in Australia who can work out biological age relative to chronological age, but that'd be important to get it together. I, I won't derail on too much. I think good science is a combination of the research-based hard science, peer-reviewed literature, what the data says. It's a an appreciation of what's worked anecdotally for people and civilizations and cultures well before any of the science that we see now. Yeah, for so, example, the Mediterranean diet and all that. Mediterranean sort of diet, if we look at herbal medicine, plant medicine, things that aren't so, you know, appreciated by current Western uh, science. But have worked science, through But the, have worked for a long period yeah. of time. Um, I take a deep interest into that as well. So I think if you can combine, you know, the empirical data, this, the hard science with the anecdotal stuff and blend it together, you have a good chance of success. And so, yeah, I mean, I've known Geordie for a long time. We started hitting the the combat space together about seven, eight years ago. And we've done a lot of fight camps together and work with a lot of fighters, world champions. So effectively, Mark, it sounds like you're a high performing individual and you need a high performance team around you to enable what you need to do. So that's what we do with world champions and that's what we'd probably do with you. I guess what I want to do too at the end of the day is I want to share with a broader audience what I have the privilege of having access to because not everyone has the same access that I have. And here I'm having access to you. I have access to Geordie. I have access to, you know, Larry, Jeff Fennick. I have access to all sorts of people. And and unfortunately, I'm, I'm in a position to be able to afford these things too. So it's not for everybody, but at the same time, I'd like to be able to share with everybody what it is that I'm lucky enough to see and experience. And, uh, It'd be cool to be able to do that. Definitely. And there's a lot of low-hanging fruit for a lot of people who don't have the access to all those resources. Totally. So it'd be good to capture that. Okay. Mick, good to see you, mate. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley. And production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.